I'm Pastor Philip Jackson, and this is the Married Now What podcast. Our goal is to provide young couples with the resources they need to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. We are so glad that you're here. Let's get to the lesson. Whose voice can calm any wave, Jesus? We are we're in a series of lessons where we're looking at um, acceptable idols. These are things that we... Um, esteem and high regard as believers usually, um, and you, and we don't really challenge each other on these things. Um, last week, we looked at um, busyness. This week, we're going to look at career and comfort. Um, you know, the, so people make idols out of, out of a lot of different things, and if we're not careful, there's two traps that we can fall into on this subject. One is um, the poverty is next to godliness. The poverty is next to godliness. There is a, um, a very real um, mindset that as long as I'm poor, that um, I can rely completely on God and He's going to be my sole provider. And so we intentionally don't pursue growth. We intentionally don't pursue good stewardship um, or increasing our ability to be able to do ministry or have an impact on our community. And um, that is, uh, it's not right. Because what it does is it, it, it uh, promulgates a spirit of, of laziness and, um, and cowardice because we are afraid that God will challenge us to do something big. And so we just say, you know what, I'm just going to be content to have the simple life. And the reason why I say that is because for a number of years that was my mindset. That, oh, well, I don't need a whole lot because God's my provider and kind of use the perpetual state of uh, financial um, urgency as an excuse to talk about how godly I am. And that's not appropriate. The second trap is uh, to build wealth at any cost. And some people, uh, they believe that their calling is to build a financial portfolio or a lifestyle that can be used by God. The idea is that I'm going to be financially independent. There, That way I can do everything that God wants me to do. And so there, there are a lot of, of traps that we fall into. We've, we've done this a number of times where um, people dangle in front of our eyes the, the illusion that, you know, the, here's, the, here's the statement, wouldn't you love to be financially independent? Wouldn't you love to be your own boss? Wouldn't you love to be able to, to uh, dictate your own schedule and do whatever you wanted to make all the money in the world? And um, there's nothing wrong with being your own boss or having wealth or having those things, but what it does is it... Um, it clothes our greed in God language, and it's not healthy, and it's not helpful, um, because the truth is that God doesn't contradict himself, and he's explicitly said in his word, number one, that he's our provider, and then number two, that we are not to focus obsessively on building a financial empire. So the key word for us in this lesson is contentment. Okay, How do we uh, understand how God has put things together, and how do we um, honor him and our response to it. So the most common question that I've, that I have heard over the last several years working with young adults is, uh, what do you want to do? What do you want to do with your life? They're finishing high school. What do you We're in the middle of these conversations with Emma, our oldest. Um, but think about what that does. That builds our value in, into what we do, not who we are. And really the, the, the more important question is, who do you want to be? Because it's not about what we accomplish. God doesn't need us to accomplish anything. 
Um, quite frankly, he, he really can do all of that on his own. The real important thing is for us to remember who we are. And um, he's, he's not necessarily disinterested in what we do. He cares about that quite a bit. But what he is concerned about is who we are. It reminded me of 1 Peter 2, verses 9 and 10 that says, But you are a chosen family, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For you once were not a people, but now you are the people of God. You, were not re- you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. So the questions that, that we got to ask ourselves this morning is, how has God designed our lives to look? What is the purpose of our struggle? Um, should we work to build comfort, uh, comfortable lives for ourselves? Is that even something we should be focused on? What does a comfortable life mean biblically? Uh, does the definition of comfort fit into the priorities of believers? Should we even be pursuing comfort? Because really think about it. Why do we work an extra job to get more margin to pay the extra bills or try to put money back in savings, those kinds of things? Um, if we're honest, most of the time it's because we're trying to, to negate the struggle. But how many of you have realized so far that whenever you do earn that little bit extra money, that extra little thing, that something pops up and it vanishes immediately? Right? Um, there's something breaks, something happens, and it's like you can never seem to get ahead. What if that's actually de- the design? What if that's the way that God has actually put the world together? Uh, so does our definition of comfort fit into the priorities of believers? And then finally, what are the priorities of a disciple of Jesus Christ? So the first passage we're going to look at is Galatians 5, 16, and 17. Number one there on your outline, there is a constant tension between the world and the Spirit. There is a constant tension between the world and the Spirit. Galatians 5, 16 and 17, it says, I say then, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit, and the Spirit wars against the flesh. These are opposed to each other, so that you don't do what you want. In other words, we are, um, we are in a constant state of, of tension between the world and our Spirit. So, the, 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 the logical... Um, response to this is to acknowledge the reality that we will never be free from contention. We will never be free from resistance. So that lie in the back of your mind that says, if I can just get this job, if I can just get this position, if I can just get this pay grade, if I could just get this, 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 whatever the case might be, that'll help me have the margin to do exactly what God has called me to do. Um, that's not true. This is an idol that we chase thinking that... Um, we're supposed to, we're missing something, and that all we need is that one more thing, and then we're going to be satisfied. But it's a perpetual um, moving horizon that's always moving away from us, and we can never actually get to it. So, some truths from God's Word. 1 John 3 24 um, says that God uses this tension to prove that we are His. 1 John uh, says this it says, Now he who keeps his commandments abides in him, and he in him. And by this we know that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. In other words, that the Spirit confirms that we're his. What we we are, uh, as we experience our day-to-day life, we experience God moving in and out of our situations. And um, that means that in the midst of the struggle, in the midst of the tension, God is always present with us. Right? So think about my conversation on Friday with this insurance adjuster lady. Um... This is just a routine day for her, routine project for her, and yet she realizes, wow, this, this guy on the other end of the phone is a pastor, 
I can share some of my life and he can share some of his life and we can have a real moment and the Holy Spirit connected us over the phone. Total stranger lives in San Antonio. And yet I got to hear a testimony of her life. So the, the presence of the Holy Spirit proves that we're God's children. The second thing is that God uses the tension to make us more like Him. James 1, uh, 2 through 4 says this. It says, My brother, encounter all joy when you uh, fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. In other words, God uses this tension as He's with us in the moment, in, all, in this constant struggle, to make us more like Him, to make us perfect. In Matthew 5, verses 11 and 12, we see that the tension is proof that we are on the right path for life. The tension is proof that we are on the right path for life. Matthew 5 says this, Blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all kinds of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceedingly glad, for great is your reward in heaven. Here's the key part. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The idea is that if we if we experiencing this reality where we have a tension between our spirit and our flesh, it's confirmation not only that we stand with God in, in our pursuit of holiness, but also it's confirmation that we stand in a long line, a heritage of faith, and from that we can draw strength. That's the whole purpose of, of Hebrews 11 and 12 is that it says, remember who these people are, this heritage of faith, this, this great cloud of witnesses that has come before you. We can use those examples and we can draw strength from them. They're proof, confirmation that we're doing what we're, what we're supposed to be doing because the, the hard part about when, you, when you're in the middle of the, we call it the macaroni and cheese of life, the regular, everyday grind of um, trying to keep up with a little one or trying to, to maintain the job and you know, go back to work tomorrow, is that sometimes we, we start asking the question, am I doing this right? Am I really... Like, am I succeeding at what I'm doing? Or am I just living on Groundhog Day, right? Am I just reliving the day over and over again? Or am I actually making progress? We can look at our experience compared with the ordinary experiences of the people that are in God's Word, and it should give us strength. It should give us confidence knowing that, yeah, in the middle of the, the mundane parts of my life, God is working, and I can celebrate that. And it doesn't have to be this massive miracle. I'm not striking a rock and water's coming out or seeing a burning bush. But I can see the majority of experiences that people have with God and God's Word are just places where God met them in the ordinary parts of their life. So it's proof that we're on the right path. And then lastly, this tension between the world and the Spirit, God uses this tension to display the gospel. First Peter, I love this, um, right after the verses that I read just a second ago, verses 11 and 12 says this, Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. The idea is that as we are um, living out this tension, God uses us as a beacon to be able to show people what, what He's really like, who He really is. So God is not... Um, He's not up there wringing his hands, nervous about the situations that we're in, thinking, oh my goodness, how are they going to pay this bill? Or how are they going to get over this hump? Or how are they going to solve this problem? Or how are they going to fix the water heater? How are they going to fix the roof? How, all these little things that freak us out. Number one, God's not surprised by those things. But number two, we've got to recognize that our desire to be free of tension, to be free of conflict, 
is really a sinful desire to be free of having to put Him on display. Because it makes us nervous to have people watch us. It makes us nervous to have people look at us and examine our lives. But the truth is that if we are truly leaning into this reality that there's a, a war or a tension between the world and the Spirit, we have an incredible opportunity to be able to display who God is to the world. And we've got to be careful about trying to get out of that. The second thing is understanding that contentment must come over comfort. Philippians 4, 10-13 says this, it says, But I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at last you have, you have revived thinking about me. Indeed, you were thinking about me before, but you lacked opportunity. Now that I, not that I speak from want, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am in. I know how to get along with humble means. I also know how to live in abundance. In any and all things, I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Notice that this is not quoted out of context. We're not saying that, okay, yeah, God can do uh, anything and all things in my life based on my own fleshly desires. He says, I've learned to be content. Consider that. That when we want to be free of this tension, this, this, this reality of our world, we've got to remember that contentment is the goal. It's not to be free of struggle. It's not to have margin. It's not to have all these things. Contentment. A child of God draws their strength from their relationships and not their things. That's what Paul is saying here. That um, we get our perspective from understanding who God is and what He's done. Another thing is that a child of God is not afraid of asking for help. In this passage in Philippians, Paul is, is, is writing the Philippian church and saying, hey, you wanted to help me, but you didn't have the opportunity. And then he goes on to say in the verses after this, he says, I am so thankful that God put you in my life because you met those needs, those physical, tangible needs. That means that uh, we, have to be, um, we have to be honest to recognize that um, God wants us to do life together in community with one another, to not be afraid to ask for help. It's a very common thing, especially in American culture, to not want to, imp to in intrude on people, thinking that we, uh, we don't want to, to make their lives more difficult because everybody has their own problems. But the thing is, we rob them of the ability to learn how to love us. In the long term, that means that when we actually do get into really sticky messes, we have a bunch of shallow relationships. So by asking for help, you're not asking for someone to come and, and bail you out of a situation. You're asking for someone to come and learn how to love you. This contentment is something that is universal in our community. That's the way that it should be. Now, it doesn't mean that our community becomes a line item in our budget where we are constantly having other people pay our bills. It means that we should be ready and willing to help our family in order to spread the gospel as God puts us on display. Now, what about this idea of, um, I want to build up a bunch of money so that I can be financially independent and not have to worry about asking for help, number one, because that's awkward. And number two, I, I really want to be free of this constant tension. Okay, Let's talk about working towards idleness. In Luke 12, verses 13 through 21, the people are trying to manipulate Jesus uh, to get him to take sides between uh, the haves and the have-nots. This is the story you probably are familiar with. The guy comes to him and he says, Hey, listen, my, uh, my friend over here, he's trying to cheat me out of my, por my portion of the inheritance. Tell him to give me what I'm owed. 
Check this out. Luke 12, starting in verse 13, it says this. And someone from the crowd said, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the family inheritance with me. But he said to him, Man, who appointed me a judge or arbiter over you? Then he said to them, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed. For not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. And he told them a parable saying, The land of a rich man uh, was very productive. And he began reasoning to himself, saying, What shall I do, since I have no place to store my crops? Then he said, This is what I will do. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones, and there I will store up all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have many goods laid up for many years to come. Take your ease, eat, drink, and be merry. But God said to him, You fool, this very night your soul is required of you, and now... Who will own what you prepared? So this, so is the one who stores up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Man, that last phrase, not rich towards God. Um, I think that there is a very real deception here. And um, Scripture tells us that a godly person leaves an inheritance for their children. But the idea of retirement is nowhere in the Bible. Nowhere in the Bible. If you go to any nursing home, you look around, and you'll notice something. There are no Asian people in nursing homes. You know why that is? Because the Asian community takes care of their elders. They bring them in their home. This is true for other ethnicities also. But what do we do? We don't want to put a burden on our children, so we squirrel away a bunch of money, so that we can pay for our own assisted living so that we can die and not, not trouble anybody. But what does that do? It robs them of the, the opportunity to love us and to serve us. We actually, we actually cause them to not be developed socially and spiritually because we are too selfish to ask for help. This idea of working towards idleness is difficult and it's wrong. And this parable teaches that he's not concerned about who has what, that's the first thing. that He's not concerned about who has what. He warned them about wanting what other people have. He says in verse 15, Watch out and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Um, the Greek here is important because in this passage uh, where it says, Be on your guard against every form of greed, it implies a militant avoidance of building inexhaustible wealth. Uh, that whole idea of financial independence. To guard against means to avoid, to shun, to flee, or to keep oneself from a thing. Greed uh, means as a matter of extortion, a gift which betrays the giver's unwillingness to, to, uh, to bestow what is due. In other words, be on the lookout and avoid any possession that affects you negatively. Have you ever gotten to the point where you finally get your little nest egg, your savings account built up, and that becomes the thing you got to protect. Needs come up and you will actually do without just because you want to protect that number. I, uh, I was doing um, counseling with a couple uh, a few uh, years ago and um, they were in the middle of, of their engagement. His air conditioner in his house has been, had been out for years and he had over $10,000 in the bank. 
because he didn't want to disturb the number. He was actually just going home and sweating it out. Meanwhile, his, you know, his new bride was thinking, I kind of want an air conditioner in the middle of August, <laughs> right? We get to the point to where these things begin to rule our lives. The person asking the question was not concerned with fairness, wasn't concerned with fairness. They were greedy because they were discontent and selfish. Discontent and selfish. In response to the 5,000 people who Jesus fed, if you remember the story, that the crowd came to Jesus, they're in the middle of, of ministry, <clears throat> and he feeds them, and he realizes they're going to try to make him the king because they got a free lunch. Not because they wanted actually what he had, the, 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 the spirit of life, but they wanted a, 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 a life that was free of this tension of trying to make our way. And so they came to him, and they wanted to make him the king, and he ran away from them. In Mark chapter 8, the story picks up. And Jesus, he pulls his disciples and he pulls the crowd and he says, And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in glory of his Father with the holy angels. In other words, our goal is not to create margin or even to work toward what some call financial freedom. The deception of financial freedom is that it feeds the lie that we can be free from struggle. But struggle is the means of righteousness. And there's no version of Christianity that's free from struggle. So, we have to fix our mind. Make this decision in your family right now. We will have trouble. We will have struggle. We will slog this out for the rest of our lives. There will never be a moment when you have margin. And if you find yourself looking around with all of the time in the world, you need to reevaluate your priorities because there is much work to be done for the kingdom. God has, has intended for us to do so much more than to just build a bank account and then die. It's so much more. Proverbs 23 says this, Do not weary yourself. I love the Amplified version of this. The Amplified Bible says, Do not weary yourself with the overwhelming desire to gain wealth. Cease from your own understanding of it. When you set your eyes on wealth, it is suddenly gone. For wealth certainly makes itself wings like an eagle that flies to the heavens. Point number four here is that wealth is not the purpose of work. We don't work to get wealthy. We don't work to get money. We work to... Um, to contribute to what God is doing. Now for men especially, guys, listen to me, we disguise our greed and our covetousness under the lie of saying I'm providing for my family. We build a career. We, uh, we make moral compromises. We do all kinds of things to, to gain uh, social status at the expense of our family's development. And we say, well, you know, I'm just doing what I'm supposed to do. I'm just providing for my family. Total bullcrap. Not true. The key question here is, what legitimate kingdom purpose do you have for working so much? What legitimate kingdom purpose do you have for putting so much effort into a, into a relationship, into an organization that will replace you as soon as you leave? That will forget you months after you're gone? Verse 4 of Proverbs 
23. Matthew Henry had a, uh, his commentary on this verse struck me last night as I was reading it. He says, Those that aim at great things fill their hands with business more than they can grasp, so that their life is both a perfect drudgery and a perpetual hurry. But do not be such a fool. Do not labor to be rich. What you have or do, be master of it, and not a slave to it, as those that rise up early, sit up late, and eat the bread of carefulness, and all to be rich. If your career opportunities are from God, they will never be the expense of the commandments of His Word. If your career opportunities are from God, they will never be at the expense of the commandments of His Word. In other words, the commandments of leading your family to teach them biblical, biblically in, in true, honest discipleship. Your career will not make you sacrifice the things that God has, has told you should be a priority, like being with His people. Hebrews tells us to not forsake the assembling of the believers. Why? Because it, it, it compels us to love and to good works. <clears throat> Think about what tactic of the enemy. He would say, you know what? You, don't need to, you, you really should just take that extra shift on a Sunday because you know you need the extra money. But let's not forget that God is our provider. Let's not forget that God's given us a mandate to be together with His people because it, it frames our reference correctly to where we actually see the truth. Our opportunities will not uh, be at the expense of His Word. Number five, the cost of idleness. Now, in the Thessalonian church, there was a problem. People were abusing the generosity of the community. They were essentially coming to the church with a, a, a hat in hand asking for money over and over again. And so Paul wrote them, and he rebuked what's happening. This idea that we're supposed to be a perpetual ATM for people that aren't taking responsibility for the life is also not true. And so in his rebuke, he says this, Second uh, Thessalonians 3, 16, 6-13. Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from every brother who walks in an unruly manner and not according to the tradition which they receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we did not act in an unruly manner among you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But the labor and hardship we kept working night and day, so that it would, be, so that it would not be a burden to any of you, not because we do not have the authority, but in order to offer ourselves as a model to you so that you would imitate us. For even when we were with you, we used to command this to you. If anyone is not willing to work, neither let him eat. For we hear that some among you are walking in an unruly manner. In other words, walking in a way that is totally uh, um, disregarding responsibility, personal responsibility. Doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. Now such persons we command and exhort in the Lord Jesus Christ that working with quietness, they eat their own bread. But as for you, brothers, do not lose heart in doing good. We're called to avoid people who disrespect the call to support one another by living against biblical instruction. Um, one of the unintended, unintended uh, experiences of being on staff at a church is that we have people who ask for help all the time, and the majority of the time we help them. Give them financial resources or, or food or groceries, things like that. Many times, people that have no connection to Evergreen. But there have been others who have joined our church just so they could manipulate our people. And there have been moments when we've had to have hard conversations as a staff with those people and say, listen, you're abusing the body. And people are so generous that they're willing to give anything to help others. And we need to, we need to be responsible uh, to, uh, to protect the community from manipulation. 
Uh, a child of God should not feel bad about asking for help. A child of God should not feel bad about asking for help, but they should understand that they are still required to put forth the effort to contribute to the body. We are all required to put forth the effort. Uh, the idea is that if I don't have money to give to contribute to what God is doing, I'm going to give my human resources. I'm going to give my skills. I'm going to give my time. I'm going to give my abilities. I'm going to make myself available. Um, in the absence of, of financial resources, honestly, human resources are better because we get more time together. Otherwise, their actions will produce a strain on the body and foster resentment. Otherwise, we don't contribute. Their actions will produce a strain on the body and foster resentment. And lastly here, I want to end with a passage of Scripture. We worship the idols of career and comfort because, number one, we don't believe that God is enough for us. We chase after uh, progress. We chase after a, a bigger salary. Now, here's the thing. I'm not saying that, that making money is a bad thing. I'm not saying that at all. But what I'm telling you is that if you pursue your career simply because it's going to give you a, it, it, it feeds the lie in your life that you're going to be somehow free of this struggle, you're chasing something that's a shadow. You're never going to catch it. It's always going to be, there's, always, there's never going to be enough. It'll take wings and fly away. What we're saying is that we don't believe that God's enough. Secondly, we also are saying that we don't like His design for us to struggle and deny our flesh. We don't like His design for us to struggle and deny our flesh. I was up late last night. I couldn't sleep. And uh, I hadn't incorporated these passages into my lesson at all. And I spent some time with the Lord. And, and um, I was, I've, I've heard over and over again um, that if I can't sleep, it means that God's, God wants to say something to me. And um, so I got up and I began to journal. I began to read. And I came across Isaiah 40. And um, for those of you who have been thinking about these words that I have said over the last 30 minutes, and uh, you're contemplating, man, this is, this is really, I'll be honest with you, after I, after I spent time in the Word last night, like I laid there, I went to bed around 1230, and, and um, I just laid there looking at the ceiling, thinking, man, Lord, all the things that you've done in my life, and yet I'm still having to learn this lesson taking care of all these things. And when I read this in Isaiah 40, um, it just really convicted my heart. Starting in verse 28, it says this, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, Yahweh, the creator of the ends of the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the weary, and to him who lacks vigor, he increases might. Though youths grow weary and tired, and choice young men stumble badly, yet those who hope in Yahweh will gain new power. They will mount up with wings like eagles. They will run and not get tired. They will walk and not become weary. I have learned that exhaustion is a real part of middle-aged life, young adult life. And I have grown to where I, I begin to ask myself when I, when I get anxious or when I get tired, who, who am I assuming is, is doing the heavy lifting in my life? 
If it's me, I'm going to grow tired. I'm going to grow anxious. I'm going to grow nervous. But if I'm relying on an almighty God who not only uh, never becomes weary or tired, but He gives strength to those who need it, His children, I begin to ask myself, man, maybe I'm trying to do too much. Maybe I'm not abiding in Him. Maybe I'm not relying on His, His, His guidance. And I'm trying to just bootstrap everything. Maybe I need to stop doing so much and just let Him tell me exactly what I need to do. And then, I, and then on the other side of this, I think of Lamentations 3. Um, this has become a really sweet passage to me, but listen to this. Lamentations 3, for beginning in verse 25, it says this, The Lord is good to those who wait for Him, to the soul who seeks Him. It is good that one should hope and wait quietly for the salvation of the Lord. It is good for a man to bear the yoke of his youth. Let him sit alone and keep silent, because God has laid it on him. Let him put his mouth in the dust. There may yet be hope. Let him give his cheek to the one who strikes him and be full of reproach. For the Lord will not cast off forever. Though he causes grief, yet he will show compassion, according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly, nor grieve the children of men. Here's my encouragement to you. If you are young and you're in the middle of your career and you are um, doing your best to get ahead, I don't want to discourage you. I don't want to discourage you for building a life for your family and taking care of your family because poverty is not next to godliness. But I do want to warn you that as you set your sights on your purpose, know that the idol of your career, the idol of comfort, trying to get past this latest challenge, thinking that there won't be a challenge right behind it. These are false horizons. These are shadows that we chase, that the the enemy loves to tell us, oh, if you can just get to this point, you'll be okay. If you can just get past that, you'll be fine. And it's not true. We've got to remember the truth of Galatians 5, 16 and 17. To not to walk by the Spirit and not by the flesh. For the flesh wars against the Spirit and the Spirit wars against the flesh. These are opposed to each other so that we don't do what we want. In other words, The simple reality is this, that our hearts are desperately wicked and God uses these trials to draw that selfishness out and to make us righteous. And when we try to avoid those trials, when we try to avoid that hardship for the sake of our own comfort, what we're doing is we're telling God, I'm okay where I'm at. I don't need you to take me to the next thing. I don't need to know you any more deeply. I don't need you to help me in the future. I just want what you can do for me. Our relationship with Him is a relationship. It's not a transaction. God's not a cosmic ATM just paying our bills. He's a loving and gentle Father who wants what's best for us. So remember, as you make decisions about your priorities as a couple, both financially and with your career, that how you navigate those things really matters. And be careful that you don't build uh, an unacceptable idol in your life. Because you will teach those around you who are watching you, namely the little ones, what is really important to you. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for your, for your word. Thank you for the richness of your word. Lord, I ask that you, would, um, that you would teach us the fullness of this, that you would continue to, to draw out the truth, and Lord, that you would convict our hearts. I pray for the families that are represented here. And those that couldn't make it this morning that will listen online, Lord, I pray that you would just be present and that you would convict us about the ways that we have built up these idols and that we worship them with how we live our lives. Father, give us courage. Give us courage to face the truth and to do it in humility. 
And Father, I pray that as we face the, the challenges ahead, that we would glorify you with how we respond to your will. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to like and subscribe to our content. We are available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you find your favorite podcasts. The Married Now What podcast is a ministry of Evergreen Church in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and is meant to be a resource for in-depth Bible study for couples striving to build their lives on the truth of God's Word. For more information and additional lessons, please visit our website, evergreenbc.org. I've tried.